1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, most people say that they're overwhelmed by all the things that they have to do. I hear that routinely, and I have to confess, even I feel that on occasion. And regardless how much progress we make, it seems that there's always more and more and then still more. And we see this impact in our health, in our emotions, in our sense of satisfaction with life. And there is a w- I want what I want to say today is there is a way to thrive. But we have to be intentional about our choices. Now, you may be asking me, what does that mean? Well, guess what? That's what we're going to talk about today, how to thrive. So with me today is Jenny Broxas. Now, Jenny has an interesting background. She says as a kid, her favorite tale was Rudyard Kipling's story about how the elephant got his trunk You know, the story about when different people are touching different parts and they're sensing very different things. And she says that like the elephant, she's insatiably curious about the world. And it also got her into trouble on occasions, like the time she set fire to the kitchen during chemistry experiment. I'd like to hear more about that, but perhaps not today. And it has led her, this curiosity has led her to a sense of awe and wonder about the human body and a career in medicine as a principal of a group of medical practice board certified lifestyle physicians and workplace consultants in brain health, mental well-being, and social connection. The book that we're talking about is her fourth book, and it is called Thriving Mind, How to Cultivate a Good Life. Um, And she says, I have to say this, what gets her out of bed in the morning is the opportunity to inspire others to fully thrive and create a good life. So Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. I'm delighted to be here with you. I am thrilled to have you. And I have to say at the outset, I read hundreds of books and I loved the book. So that should be a clue for anybody who's going to tune in for the rest of the show. All right. But I want to start with this. You're a clinician professionally, and you were seeing things in your patients that were beginning to raise alarms for you. And this is before you wrote the book about Thrive. So what were you seeing and what were you worried about? I was worried about the number of people who were coming
2: in to see me because they had various symptoms. The primary problem, often being total exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Some of them were just dreading going to work. They couldn't face it, often because of toxic relationships mm-hmm. in the workplace. Many people were finding their sleep was disturbed. Uh, many people were falling asleep easily because they were so tired, but then waking up usually about two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, and their brain was in party mode. It was sort of really busy uh, making them think about all the other things that was going on in their lives and their work. So they were pre-preparing what was going to come up for the next day. And, and they were really struggling to, to know how to keep it all together. They just weren't coping.
1: Now, those statements... <laughs> could fit just about everybody I coach and work with. (laughs) Um, I want to start with the top one, though. You know, we always say I'm exhausted. I'm so exhausted. Hmm. But there's a difference between I'm exhausted and the kind of exhaustion you're talking about, I think. So tell me what you mean when you say total exhaustion.
2: A a healthy exhaustion is when you've probably been very physically active. You might have spent all day in the garden. You've just been... Lifting logs or something, and you're you're tired, and that's that's fine. Um, your body just recovers from that. The exhaustion I'm talking about is mental exhaustion, mental fatigue, where you've got so much on your mind that you really can't decide which way to go first. You're sort of hesitating about how to make the best decision, and that mental exhaustion is is as tiring, if not more tiring than the physical fatigue that we sometimes experience.
1: Okay. Now I would say that absolutely every one of those hits my clients. So people are often saying I'm exhausted. And what I observe in them is very chaotic thinking that they can't Mm -hmm. separate out the emotions from the facts and figures, make a decision, decide to take an action and move forward on it. They'll fret about it and revisit it and a whole bunch of stuff and wonder if they made the right decision. For sure. I think every one of my clients has some toxic relationship at work that is stressing them out a bit. (laughs) I know they all don't get enough sleep and they don't get enough sleep because they give exactly the same story that you did that they fall asleep, but then they wake up in the middle of the night worried about something in one form or another. And I'm hearing increasingly people say, I'm just so mentally tired. I don't have the stamina I used to have. It's a word we used to use. Okay. So, all right, fine. And why do you think all of this is happening? What's driving these symptoms?
2: I think there's a number of things. First of all, I think we've created a culture of expectation about how we go about our our working lives, I think the expectation that we put upon ourselves sometimes, but there are also external expectation, is that you will always be on, you will always be available, you will always be giving your very best. It's not enough to be running at 100%. You have to be giving 110% at the very minimum, otherwise you're not really showing that your dedication and commitment to your work. And I think we we fear being judged by our, our peers and our colleagues if we are seen to, you know, want to buck the system and say, well, actually, I'd really like to leave work on time today because one of my children has a school play or sports day or something, and I really want to be there for them. And you're made to feel as if you're asking to commit a cardinal sin. By, by choosing basically to leave at the time when you are contracted to leave. We have bought into this idea that you can only be successful by driving ourselves too hard, by treating ourselves essentially as if we are machines. Mm-hmm. And we've we've mm-hmm. lost sight of the fact we're human. Mm-hmm. And as humans, like any other animal, we have certain physiological and psychological limits. And at the moment, we're trying to push those boundaries this isn't about trying to run the four-minute mile. This is about trying to run the two-minute mile and wondering why we're not achieving that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, I in a number of companies that I have visited on occasion without naming any names or giving anybody, (laughs) a lot of places, there is a bit of sense of you know, yes, we want you to take your vacation and have your vacation time, but at the same time, come on, can't you really deal with that email or can't you really deal with that problem? Or, you know, yes, go home and spend time with your family, but I want you to make that conference call at 10 o'clock at night. There is a double messaging that's happening, kind of coming and going, and a bit of judgment if oh, you yes. say there's, no. There's, <laughs> there's,
2: there's a lot of judgment out there. We we, we race to judge all the time and the problem is when we're feeling under pressure when we're feeling that that level of stress building up we we jump straight into assumptions and judgment mode much more quickly than if we were feeling calm, confident, and relaxed. And I think that's part of the issue as well.
1: Well, and in my world, we know this from looking at, for example, the Hogan Personality Index, where you look at the dark sides and you look at the stress levels and you say, when did those dark sides come out, the things that are really unpleasant and are not going to help you as a leader or as a person in an organization, and they come out when you're stressed. And it's exactly when this kind of stuff starts to show up that we start to see those um, less than positive aspects of people's leadership. Okay. All right. So I just want to go back to something you said, we are not machines that we are pushing ourselves physically (laughs) and psychologically, but somehow we believe that's the right thing to do. So I have said to people, we know from science that if you're working 80 hours a week, you are going to make mistakes that can cost lives Plus money, plus a whole bunch of other stuff. The human body cannot do that. I just want to confirm. You're saying nodding, but is that really true? How much can we tolerate? How far can we go as human beings? Well, I think we, I think
2: we can even be more blunt than that. I think we can simply say overwork is killing us, literally. Okay. We're we're dying at an earlier life time than uh, we would do otherwise. From heart attack, stroke, or suicide. And while you might love your job, I don't think any job is worth dying early for. Um, so I think we need to be mindful that the, the studies have indicated that in an ideal world, and I get that's not always going to be very easy for people, we we should be aiming for about 38 hours a week. Now, there's a notion. Whoa. Wonder. <laughs> Have you heard about people working a 38- or 40-hour week before in the past?
1: Yeah, in France, and we used to make fun of them. For- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for my French colleagues. <laughs>
2: yeah, but, but you know, it's it's become the norm to work 50, 55, 60, 70, even 80 hours or more. Yeah. And because it's been accepted as the norm, we, we don't know any different because if it's norm, then everybody does it right. Right. It doesn't make it right, but we just do it because right. that is the norm.
1: Yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay. So now I want to take this into a more personal because you had a personal experience. So tell mm-hmm. me what happened. You're practicing medicine, you're seeing patients, and you hit a mm-hmm. roadblock. What happened for you?
2: <laughs> I fell flat on my face, Wanda, basically. <laughs> um I was running my own practice. It was very busy. It was very successful. I had a couple of, my children were at fairly young age at that point in time. My husband was frequently travelling overseas for work. I was under a lot of pressure and I was always looking for that extra assistant to bring on board to try and lighten the load. And over the months, I, I was... I was probably somewhat aware, but I just chose to ignore what was happening. I was starting to lose weight. I lost nine kilos, and I'm not, I haven't got a big frame, so it was quite a stark change to the point that some of my patients were quietly asking my receptionist if I had cancer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I was dreading going to work. I, I have the most beautiful drive to work normally. It's along the coast. I can look out over the ocean and it's glinting and it's sunny and it's beautiful and you watch, you know, these people in their wetsuits waiting to catch a wave. It's gorgeous. But I'd lost, lost interest in it. I didn't enjoy that anymore and I was just going through the motions. I was asking myself, how many more times do I have to do this? How many more years will I be trudging up and down on this road going to and from work? What is this all about? And I was feeling incredibly guilty and sad that I was missing out on seeing my children grow up. I was paying a nanny, but basically what I was doing at work was paying for her rather than paying for freedom to do my work to the best of my ability because I am a perfectionist and a high achiever um, and I've always been very driven. And I just completely ignored all the warning signs that I was heading very rapidly Towards burnout, and it that the moment that uh, it hit me, literally, square between the eyes, was I had had chronic neck and shoulder pain for months. (laughs) I was a real pain in the neck. So I made an appointment to see a therapist, as one does, and I was lying there and he was treating my neck and my shoulders and saying, oh, yes, there's a lot of muscular tension in here. And I'm thinking, yeah, probably. Um, And he started telling me the story about another doctor that he'd met who'd basically collapsed through overwork. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, really? Um, Surely, you know, we just push on through because that's what we expect of ourselves. And then I passed out. Oh. Literally, and I was out cold. (laughs) So um, the poor old therapist was a bit concerned, but you know, when I'd gathered my thoughts and uh, my belongings, I took myself home because it was a Friday afternoon, and I thought, it's okay. It's just been a busy week. I'll. It was a long weekend, so I thought I'll just rest up, be stay quiet, be fine for Tuesday. Well, the Tuesday. Turned into 12 months.
1: 12 months, wow.
2: 12 months to recover. I had no idea how I had got to such a low ebb. Um, I was physically unable to get out of bed. Okay. Um, it took all my energy to try and put my clothes on and move from the bedroom to our family space. And I would just sit for hours, mute, um, not really wanting to communicate, unable to communicate. And it took a long time to heal. Uh fortunately, I had a most wonderful psychologist who was known for treating doctors. Clearly, doctors are at a particular risk here. <laughs> so we've seen a lot of it before. And my my husband was uh, a pa- a tower of strength. Uh, I don't think I would have managed to recover in the way I did without his love and his support. That made all the difference, and the support of my wonderful friends who just came around to sit with me would sometimes gently encourage me when I got better to say, come on, Jenny, we're going for a walk. We're going for a coffee. We're going to do this. And they didn't take no for an answer. I was just taken along with them. Mm -hmm. And they were just there for me, and they just showed love. Mm -hmm. And during that healing process, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about um my own contribution to this scenario. And that was really tough because initially I was the victim. Right. You know, everything else was against me. Everything else was going wrong. And it was everybody else's fault except mine. And as soon as the psychologist helped me to look inwardly to see uh, what my behavior had done to contribute to this um, situation, it was like, "Whoa, how could I have been so unself-aware? How could I have been so blind? And I wasn't asking those questions to chastise myself. I was really curious as to what had led this all to occur. And I was very mindful that with so many of my patients that I'd been seeing before, they were basically going through much of the same thing. They weren't always reaching complete burnout but they were getting browned off, as I call it, <laughs> um, where they'd lost their mojo, they were feeling tired all the time, they were questioning, well, how can I have a life as well as be successful? Surely there's something different that I could be doing. And so I wrote the book really to address the, the maladies that I see in the modern workplace where we have bought into the wrong notions of what it takes to lead a fulfilling and happy life. Right. And what we can be doing differently. So that okay. was really my, my mission yeah. to, to help other people avoid that because it's not oh. fun. I don't <laughs> recommend it for anybody. <laughs> and it's such a waste. It's such a waste of potential. It's very damaging to people. It does a lot of harm.
1: All right. So you ticked off for me what you were seeing in your patients, the total exhaustion, the dreading work, toxic relationships, the sleep mm. disturbances, the waking up in the middle of the night, the struggling to cope, the not feeling the joy in the work or in the things that are around you. Are there other signs we should be aware of when we're when we're before we hit the fallout on the floor <laughs> in the kind of burnout run up to total burnout? Are there other signs we should be watching for?
2: I think the biggest red flag is probably when you realise you've stopped caring, mm-hmm. when you've stopped caring about the work you do, when you've stopped caring about the people you're interacting with, when you've stopped caring about pretty much anything. Um, I think that's that's the biggest red flag to look out for. And I think also how it can manifest in some people, not everybody, is you start to withdraw from mm-hmm. From other people now this could be a sign of depression, and depression often turns up alongside burnout. It's not caused by burnout they don't cause each other, but they often accompany each other and as does anxiety and panic and I think if you become aware that you're coming up with yet one more excuse or justification why you can't join your friends for dinner, why you've got to stay late to do more work and you're sorry you won't be joining your partner for for, dinner at the restaurant or whatever. If you find yourself always coming up with um, excuses, and, yes, it's partly because you're using your work as an excuse, but often you're not actually working. You just want that time away from people. You're socially withdrawing you're Mm -hmm. disconnecting from other people. I think that is a big, big, big warning sign.
1: Okay. I certainly see that um, regularly where people stay a lot later at work than they (laughs) necessarily have to, to both be efficient or to get the job done, but it's an excuse as an excuse not to do other things. Okay. So, Clearly, we want to avoid burnout. No one yes. wants burnout. That's just not productive. And being 12 months out of job or being that far, it's just not pleasant. There's just no part about it. So you now have this whole notion of what it looks like to thrive. Right? And this probably still means we're still working. But what's your de- how do you <laughs> define thriving? <laughs> what is that all about?
2: Thriving, I think, is is actually a very individual thing. Because what enables me to thrive won't necessarily be the same things that you select for your thriving box. Um, So I think it's having that awareness, that reflection piece on what nourishes my soul, what fills my cup, all those things that we ask ourselves, what am I here on this planet to do, what gives me joy and pleasure, and to tap into those things Because those are the things, and they're often small things, uh, that by regularly practicing them every day, we create our own good or fulfilling life. And it's for some people, it might be getting outside for a 20-minute walk. For some people, it might be their meditation practice. For other people, it might be more sleep. Um, I think we need to identify what those things are and make them non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no excuses, no justifications. Period, and and rank them in order of their meaning for you. For me, mine my number one is always sleep. If I don't sleep, I'm horrible. I'm horrible to other people. <laughs> I'm horrible to myself, and I'm not effective or efficient. So for me, it's it's paramount that I get sufficient, good quality, uninterrupted sleep. So. It's it's about putting in place those boundaries that make sure that I can get there. And of course, you know, I'm human and I do go out and I do have late nights occasionally. But I always make sure now that I've got sufficient downtime to recoup and rest and restore my energy afterwards. So I don't know what your non-negotiable would be, Wando, but I, it's it's different for everybody.
1: Hey I, I gotta tell you, everybody who works with me knows this. My number one non-negotiable is give me good food. Ah, and I don't, I don't good. Mean, but I cannot function without feeding yes. my body. I mean, I just yes. crash like mad. You do, it's ugly. You do not want to be around <laughs> if I have not eaten. It doesn't work. Oh. And then yeah. there's a social element for me. There's a connection element that is the fuel for me that keeps me going. Fortunately, that's my work. So that makes that easier to do. But those are the two for me. Sure. So what do you find in, um, are there big categories that we should be looking at that you think are the most important for thriving?
2: I think, I think we can go back to the basics, which is how we eat, move, sleep. And manage our stress and it's interesting about the the eating i'm absolutely fascinated by the findings from nutritional psychiatry that's coming out today um, which clearly demonstrate that if we eat too much junk food and processed food we especially if it's high in sugar that we are actually predisposing ourselves to higher levels of depression i mean you know what are we doing to ourselves we 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 all know what the good stuff is but because it's quick, it's available, it's cheap, we we sometimes go for the stuff that's been manufactured to make us want to eat it without sort of going back to the basics of, sort of whole food that's unprocessed and fresh, yeah. um, and and exercise. Like you know, we we know how important it is to exercise, and yet we often don't because we we we've stayed late at work again. And yet we understand from the science that we evolved while moving and the reason our brains work so well is because we're getting that extra blood supply with the extra oxygen and nutrients, but also it's stimulating the release of those feel-good hormones and it clarifies our thinking. I mean, sometimes if I'm stuck on a particular problem I'm trying to resolve, I'll go out for a walk or a run or something because that activity clears my mind and makes it much easier then to find the solution to the problem I'm dealing with. So those are the fundamentals. But then beyond those basics, it's about tapping into um, those other extras, the creative side of ourselves, uh, whatever that might look like, whether it's reading or theatre, whether it's music that you'd love, if you play an instrument or listen to music. Dancing, I think, is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It goes in with the the exercise too. And if you hate exercise, dancing is a wonderful alternative. Um, And just to sort of use those things as your basis for what you do to thrive, but adding in all those other things that lead to greater social connection and to look after our mental well-being. And I think at this time in particular, this is essential. Mm-hmm. Those two things, mental well-being and human connection, are going to help see us through these these challenging times.
1: And what do you advise? So I will take you up on that one. What do you advise in terms of taking care of our mental well-being? Do you have a sort of checklist of things you recommend people do, or do you have a favorite go-to exercises? What's your recommendation?
2: Uh, again, it's a bit like the thrival piece. It's what works for you. Mm-hmm. And for I think the biggest thing is to give ourselves sufficient downtime where you can just be still, stop rushing around and just let your mind quieten, whether you use a breathing practice or some form of meditation practice, or just sit on the back deck with a cup of coffee or something like that. It's just letting go and just sitting quietly and having that reflective time just to check in with how you're going. I think those are the, the, the things I would start with at least. Okay.
1: Okay. You um, make a lovely distinction between mindfulness and mindlessness. You want to explain those two and why they matter so much? I think we've all
2: got mindful problems. (laughs) Um, The problem is when our minds are so full, we we start to become more mindless. Where we're still busy doing stuff, but we're not actually taking in the information and processing it, so that we're actually saying the most appropriate thing at the time. Um, And I think we've all been there in the checkout queue, where you know the harassed person who's helping you is is clearly got her mind or his mind on other things and they say something and, you, and you're looking at them thinking, why did you just say that when you've just already asked me that two seconds ago? Um, so it, it it stops us from having that clarity of thought. So by being more mindful, we're paying attention. We're noticing what's going on in ourselves and in our environment that's around
1: us. Okay. All right. And there's all sorts of practices around that one that I have seen from just tuning into the things that give you joy, um, noticing the drive to work by the lovely ocean and so on, seeing the trees, just stopping to tune into any of those senses seems to be helpful in the mindfulness. But I'm intrigued with this notion of mindlessness, where you just let your mind empty and you don't try to put anything in it and you don't try to add new thoughts or think your way through anything you just have this quiet moment to be quiet because yes. we know that's where the creativity comes in and where the absolutely yes in. so it's yes. fascinating how little yes. we actually do that one yeah okay um jenny this is a perfect time for a break so with me today is jenny broxas The book that I love and highly recommend is Thriving Mind, How to Cultivate a Good Life. And as you can tell, Jenny's got an awful lot of experience from this one, from the medical profession. Um, In addition, she's got lots of great practices. So I want to come back with a whole sort of questions around what do we do about a few things that are going to help us find what it is that lets each of us thrive. And we'll be right back.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to out of the comfort zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Jenny Broxus. The book we're talking about is Thriving Mind, How to Cultivate a Good Life. The notion here is that too many of us are on edge in their lives as we have all of these judgments about what we should do, how hard we should work, that we have to give 110%, that we have to be always on and always available, and we're making it impossible for us to find the components of our life that actually help us thrive. Jenny's been very clear that what thriving is about is unique to each individual and that each person has to determine what it is that helps him or her thrive. Order those, list those things down and then put them in order and create some non-negotiables, whether that's exercise or food, as you've heard in my case, or time with family or time alone or a time for exercise, whatever it is to find it for yourself and list that and then create space for that. And also to tune in to when it is you're making excuses that in some ways are allowing you to avoid. Okay. So Jenny, I want to come back to some tactics. Um, So you talk a lot about creating happiness. What's your advice for how do we create more sense of happiness in our lives?
2: I think the first thing is to realize that while some people seem to have a natural, happy personality, we can all nudge our own level of happiness to a higher level if we seek to, by putting in place those things that make us feel good. Mm-hmm. So, when I talk about happiness, I'm not talking about rose tinted glasses or happy clappy happiness. I'm talking about that sense of calm, contentment, um, I'm okay. I'm managing alright even though things might be going wrong I'm still doing okay this is alright I'm not sinking I'm I'm rowing my boat quite strongly so that's good so for me happiness is about nurturing those those relationships that that matter the most and I think this is probably the the number one thing if we want to be happier because we are social creatures The the stronger our closest relationships, the happier we will be. There was a great study that uh, is still ongoing, the Harvard Adult Development Study, which began in 1938. Isn't that wonderful? Love it. And it's still ongoing. And some of the original cohort are still with us, and it's just magic. And the question being asked was, you know, what leads to uh, a successful, um, long and happy life? And I, I loved the the comment made by the current director Robert Waldinger, I think his name is, um, and he said, "What determines how you will age at, when you are age fifty is not the level of your cholesterol; it's the quality and closeness of your nearest relationships." Okay. And I thought, "Whoa, that's amazing!" Because we we stress so much about, "Well, how's your blood pressure? What's your weight like?" Um, I should really quit smoking, all these other things. But if we focus on our our important relationships, then we, we are going to be happier, full stop. And then beyond that, it's about adopting the mindset of, what can I do to get the most out of each day? What can I do to help others get the most out of their day? One of the strongest things to reduce our own stress is to simply seek to help others. Mm -hmm. As soon as we do that, we feel better. It's taking the focus off our own worries and all our focus is on what can I do to assist this person who I have identified as having some sort of need. And, And you create a ripple effect because when you are generous with your own attention, with your um, own focus on reaching out the other person is enormously grateful for that and it boosts their level of generosity and it creates that lovely ripple effect and I think we forget how how impactful um, an attitude of gratitude is in elevating our sense of, of well-being. Um, Martin Seligman and others have worked extensively in this space and Simply practicing being grateful for what we have rather than focusing on what we haven't achieved, what we've lost, all this grief that many people are experiencing at the moment, focusing on the good things, um, the fact that we have a roof over our head, that sun might be shining, um, that we do have good food to put on the table, all those things, it helps us, but it also lifts our level of optimism. Which uh, and the, and the return on investment for this, as Sean Acor talks about in his his work, is that you know, 21 days of um, writing down or noting things that you're grateful for every day leads to six months of higher optimism. And I'm thinking, whoa, where else can you get that? That's amazing. Um, the other thing that that uh, I think helps people, to feel happier is to have that sense of connection with the world around them. Getting outside into a blue or green space, um, I mean, obviously it depends where you live. If you're surrounded by concrete, it's a bit more challenging. But, again, the science is in, um, and it probably harks back to our evolution that, you know, when we are out and we've got visible greenery around us, it helps us to feel calm, we're more relaxed, our cortisol levels drop, and we feel good. And whether you're talking about happiness or mental well-being, if we can get two hours a week in a greenhouse or somewhere, uh, we're going to feel better about things, better about ourselves and feel overall that that increase in our overall level of happiness. It's not about being happy all the time because sometimes people say, oh, Jenny, you know, when you're talking about happiness, rah, 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 you know, I don't want to be dancing around the office singing kumbaya or stuff like that. I said, no, 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 it's not about that. And it's not about being happy all the time. Happiness is what I call one item in your wardrobe of emotion. Okay. What we need to do is know how to tap into the appropriate emotion for a given situation. When we can do that and do that well, we can appreciate happiness to a greater level. That's right.
1: That's right. Well, I think it's um, Barbara Fredrickson's, but lots of other people have also done the same that says that optimism, this sense of positivity comes not from having everything work smoothly. No. Because it's a mix of what's good and what's not so good, but it's a matter of putting our attention on the positive as opposed to putting our love attention into what went wrong or what might go wrong or where wrong might go. And that's what you're saying is finding Mm -hmm. those things that you appreciate and can recognize and note them and write them down and do that for 21 days. And I can promise you it also will change your mental attitude. And it is fascinating, this research that has come out in the last little bit about how important it is to be around trees and in greenery and so on. I can see offices now making a mandatory roof garden just to help the well-being of their employees would yes. be a good thing. Yeah. Okay, let me shift for a minute. You've said this a couple of times about the need to um, figure out what matters to you and focus on that. So how do you help people figure out what it is that matters to them? <laughs> Among the hundred things that I could add to my list of maybe that's what I would like to do, how do I know what's really important to me? I think you have to ask
2: yourself, you know, what What do you stand for? What? What do you believe in? If if you were wanting to have somebody write your epigraph, what would they say about you? You know, um, it's if if you know what you stand for and what's important to you, then that really helps to define what your purpose is, and. I don't. I think sometimes we get a bit hung up when people think, "Oh gosh, I don't know what my purpose is." I've left it lying around somewhere, but I really can't identify it either. And 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 that's not the point. The point is really doing those things that help you to find meaning in what you're doing with your work. And by undertaking that, um, it's often a stepwise process. I mean, lots of people don't really. Discover their their true purpose until later in life, and there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be you know, eighteen; you could be in your fifties or or beyond, mm-hmm. and suddenly discover this is what I'm on this planet to do. This is what really juices me up. This is what I'm I really consider terribly important. And I think that's that's the way to approach it. And I think sometimes we can we can help ourselves by just jotting down what our core beliefs are what our values are and by looking at those try to determine what 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 who we are and what we're all about mm-hmm. and if we can do that i think we can then find that that sense of purpose and when you're working with purpose when when you're when you know that your values are aligning with the people around you or the company you're working for you really feel that you're on a pathway to achieve great things, to create your ding in the universe or whatever Mm -hmm. you like to call it.
1: Yeah, I do think you're right that a lot of us get hung up. Purpose is a new thing that we're talking about. And I meet so many people, particularly young people, who want to have a sense of purpose. And they want to have Mm. this massive, you know, driving purpose statement that just is (laughs) all and does all. It's like we're putting stress on ourselves to have the purpose. Yeah. But I also find for many people, it's a series of experiences where you bring the insights from each of those experiences to do something uniquely right now. And mm-hmm. you couldn't do that thing without all of those different experiences. So you can't identify what your real calling is in ways until you've had all those experiences. So exactly, I would encourage yes. people to give themselves a break about this. Um, <laughs> yes. I do find... Sometimes, though, that if you just stop, it's like you, you said it the, earlier, if you stop and say, who am I serving and how am I serving, even in mm. any job you're doing, who am I serving and how am I serving them? Frequently, that's enough to give you that sense of meaning, that there is something yeah. here I'm doing that's of value, mm. regardless mm. what the role is or what the job is. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk for a minute, you talked earlier about laughter and play, but you cite some wonderful research around the importance of laughter and play. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh,
2: And and the science of laughter is called gelatology, which always makes me think of ice cream. (laughs) So, you know, that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, we, we, We tend to take life terribly seriously, and it is serious, obviously. We've got to, you know. Um, do, do things um, and do them well. But I think there's an enormous place for increasing the amount of time we, we allow ourselves to relax and smile and laugh and play. Uh, it's, it's good for us physically. It's been shown to strengthen our immune system. It makes us more creative uh, we're more willing to try new things. Uh, it's 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 a way we can help to also explore our world a little bit because when you're being playful, especially, you're not so head, no, up with oh, what if this doesn't work? It might fail. When you're adopting a playful approach, you're just you know, like like a child does with with Lego bricks. They're just seeing what they can create. It really doesn't matter how it goes. But in that process, they're often learning a great deal. And if you're being playful with uh, other people, the, the brainstorming activities suddenly take on a life of their own. You suddenly come up with much more innovative ideas that you're more willing to try out you're less risk adverse. So I think there's, there's a great deal to be said for that. It's also been shown that uh, people who laugh more live longer. So I think that's a good thing as well. <laughs> if you want to have a long and happy life, just keep smiling and keep laughing. And because <laughs> our emotions are contagious, you know, every time we smile, we share that gift with another person. Hmm. And it's very hard not to smile back. Unless you're in a really dark place,
1: yeah.
2: And the more we smile, the more we actually connect with each other. We, when we adopt eye gaze um, and that, you know, your warmest, most beautiful smile, you're 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 creating that connection with the other person. You're showing you've noticed them. You're being friendly. You're not baring your teeth in anger <laughs> or anything. <laughs> and and it builds. And that's essential for creating trust between people as well. And when you're in uh, a trusting environment, you feel safe. And when you feel safe, you feel relaxed. And when you feel more relaxed, you're more open-minded and more creative. So it, it's a wonderful, positive feedback loop. So the more we smile, the better we feel. And, and I always love the fact that the, the one person we can fool with a fake smile is ourselves. <laughs> you know, if I put on a fake smile, you can see it a mile away and you say, that's a fake smile. But if I put on a fake smile, if I'm having a bit of a bad hair day, my brain goes, oh, Jenny's adjusted her facial muscles. She's smiling. She must be feeling happy. And it shifts my psychology. It's amazing.
1: So, so a fake the smile more I practice what? smiling. Sorry. A fake smile works for me. If I'm fake smiling, my brain is going to feel better, even if everybody else knows that I'm fake smiling, okay? Yes,
2: Uh, that's right.
1: (laughs) What a great story. I love that one. One of my favorite people who teaches um, creativity and how to be more creative and inventive and so on, and he starts, Mitch Ditkoff, and he says, you can't have creativity without play. So you have to create a space for play if you're going to mm. have creative ideas. Yes. Full stop. Yeah, I
2: would agree with that. And I think it's sad when people doubt their own creativity. And I found myself in that space too, because when you're, when your focus is very much sort of science aligned, um, you don't always put the play space in. But if you allow yourselves self to be messy to get the paints out or the crayons and have a go at doing something that you don't expect to be good at and you just relax into it it's great fun and i think we could all do with a bit more fun in our lives at the moment <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. just a bit <laughs> and, just a bit and that playfulness is it's releasing i i do see it as a as a releasing mechanism it it takes us away from everything else. We get engrossed in the activity we're, we're involved with. And I think that that also allows our, our mind to defrag. Yeah. So it takes us away from all that stuff we've got in, in our heads. All right.
1: Okay. So I have a sense of mental well-being, some gratitude, some positive um, experiences, which you go well with the gratitude, and, um, I have some mindlessness, some emptiness, and time to relax. I have time in the green or in the blue. I have connections with people that matter the most to me. I have finding my own sense of what gives me meaning and don't get caught up in the ultimate purpose, but finding the way in which you're giving meaning. I have a sense of serving others and focusing on others. Sleep. Sleep exercise, food, smiling, and laughing, okay? I think that's the formula. Is that right, Jenny? Pretty much, yes. It sounds (laughs) a lot, doesn't it? (laughs) It does sound a lot. But again, you come back to, I have to say what of all of those are the most important to me and which one, I mean, you know, sometimes I'll take stock of my life and say, what am I missing? And there'll be a thing that I'm missing and I say, okay, my focus now is to spend some time on that because that's the part I need more of at the moment. Yes. All right, I want to turn for in just a couple of minutes, though, to um, two words that we say and we don't want to talk about, and that's anxiety and depression. Because none of us want to admit that we have anxiety and depression, and you've got about four minutes to tell us how we should think about anxiety and depression and what we should do about it. Okay. Anxiety
2: and depression result usually from an inadequate uh, attention to our mental well being so we 've allowed things to slide a bit for whatever reason. Now, a lot of people live with anxiety all the time, and one lady shared with me recently how um, she she was in her sixties and she said jenny i 've just come to realize that the level of anxiety I feel on a daily basis is not the same as everybody else.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I feel anxiety." all the time. And I said, wow, okay. And I said, well, how have you learned to manage that? And she said, well, I've just put things in place to help me recognize when my level of anxiety is getting too high. And I just put those things, those activities in place, whether it's going for a walk or going for a jog or um, having a conversation with somebody or putting on some beautiful music, whatever it takes for her, she just does that to bring herself down to the healthy level because we forget that a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of stress, is OK. Yeah. and in fact, it can help us to step up. It helps us to optimize performance, but it's about keeping it in the healthy zone. Right. Too much anxiety is when we get into trouble. and too much depression. I mean, we're, we're always in this roller coaster of emotions. We're not happy all the time. Hopefully we're not sad all the time, but people who have clinical depression have entered that state where they cannot get out of that pit of sadness. It's, it's like standing in quicksand. It's sucking them down. And no matter what they do, they can't rise up. And it's not their fault. And it doesn't mean that they're broken. It's just that that has become their way of being at this time. And what I find sad is when people either choose not to put their hand up to ask for help or think that they're going to be judged because there's still a lot of stigma out there. Let's let's face it, and I think the only way we can overcome this is to normalise talking about our feelings, and and I think this is a message, particularly for the men, because I think sometimes the guys find it harder to express themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and we we celebrate Are You Okay Day here. Australia. I don't know if you have it in America, but on a particular date in September, we have Are You Okay Day, where the premise is everybody looks around them and if they've noticed that somebody isn't quite themselves, they seem a bit quiet, they seem a little bit on edge, you basically seek to start up a conversation with, you know, Are You Okay or whatever you ask them. Because sometimes when you've given that person permission to speak, they're able to share their true feelings. They're not always ready, but it gives them that, that awareness. So, oh, I've been noticed. Um, so I think moving forward, if every employer could look at what they could be doing differently to grant permission for everybody to feel safe to speak about how they truly feel, because you know what? Everybody at the moment is experiencing high and levels of anxiety. I don't think we're, and I don't think nobody, nobody is immune to this. And if it's becoming beyond our sense of control, that's the time we need to share. That's the time to seek help. Sometimes just telling somebody helps that other person to find the confidence and the courage to deal with it themselves. But we've just got to get better at speaking up. It's not easy. And we need to ask ourselves why we're holding back.
1: Okay. Jenny, I think this one, we could have a whole show on these two because I think there are a lot more people who are struggling with anxiety and depression in varying levels and could use some help in just saying, yes, I'm one of those people who's tipped down further than I need to be, and what do I do about it? How do I bring myself back? Okay, Jenny, we are out of time. My guest today is Jenny Broxas, the book, again, I am wild about this book, Thriving Mind, How to Cultivate a Good Life. You'll find in this book dozens of exercises, all sorts of tactics on things to do, and a heavy dose of what the science is actually telling us about our sense of well-being. But I think that notion of what does it take for me to thrive is really the right place to go, and then how do I find more of that in my life today? So, Jenny, thank you for being a guest. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your own comfort zone and check out our new subscription service on outofthecomfortzone.com. Thank you for
0: joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.